If you have your Bibles, you could turn there with me. We are going to um, continue our study through the book of Hebrews um, together uh, every week until we finish the book. Uh, that's our plan now, even um, even for a season, we're doing it through video uh, live stream. We're going to work together to get through this and not only get through this, but we are going to give God glory in it. Uh, through the process. As I said in our last post, um, you know, it is good, it is right, um, it is somewhat healthy to feel a sense of loss, a, a grief, um, a longing to be together. That's how communities uh, love each other. That's, that's expected. Um, we long to be together, and, and that longing is good and healthy for a good and healthy community. But remember that as God's people, we know that our greatest fear is really God's just judgment and punishment for our sins, which has been completely paid for by the gracious gift, the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us the gift of his son. So as we read our scripture lesson in a moment uh, this morning, let me ask you this question. I just kind of wanted to linger as we look at the text this morning. Uh, What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? Proverbs 1 and, 9, 1 and 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 130 verse 3 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? O Lord, who can stand? But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Interesting passages of scripture. So let me read to you our scripture lesson with that in, in, in the background of your mind. And what we're going to do, we're going to begin with some context. So we'll look at our scripture. We're in chapter 12, as you know, Hebrews. And I want to begin our reading really in verse 18 and we'll finish the chapter. So hear the word, the infallible, authoritative, inspired word from, of God, from God. Chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the, excuse me, which words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, on, on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
For our God is a consuming fire. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning, which, by the way, has been, we've been set to preach this message on this day months ago. And that is our, our scripture lesson. Let, let me, let's let's re- rehearse quickly the big picture here. The first ten chapters of the book of Hebrews, the author has been pounding home and been really driving home to this mainly Jewish congregation that is being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, that Jesus is better, Jesus is supreme, Jesus is superior to anything else, even the things that God has anointed, God has appointed in the Old Testament era, sacrifices and, and festivals. And therefore, God's people must place their faith, place their trust, place their assurance and hope in Jesus, and Jesus alone. That's what he's been teaching us. So when persecution and hardship comes, um, difficulties abound, don't turn away, keep your faith, trust in God, endure, press on, persevere in faith, don't, don't go back, don't fall back on anything else. Stay focused, persevere, endure. And that's why we read in chapter 10, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. We, we are the ones who do not shrink back. We are the ones who persevere. We're the ones who press on. The end of chapter 10, verse 39. And the idea of this enduring faith is what launched our author into an Old Testament history lesson in chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith. Examples of men and women who went through their entire lives, not perfectly, but went through their lives trusting in God and waiting on God's promises. Some of them were fulfilled, but the one promise of the Messiah was not. And But they looked to the promise that God has made. He would send the Messiah. He would send the Christ. And during their lifetime, although Old Testament lifetime, that had not come to, to pass, but it was promised. And, and their promise, the, the promise of God, was something that they continued to trust To the end of their lives. That's what chapter 11 is about. And chapter 12 opens up with this encouragement. It really is a chapter that says this. They did it, you can do it. They did it, you can press on. They endured to the end, you can endure to the end. Chapter 12 really is all about running well. Running with endurance. Isn't that a word we need for today? So that we can run well. Run Well, run until we reach the finish line. Running well, trusting God. That's how we want to finish the race. Let me show you how we don't want to finish the race. Kramer? I told you. Up all night playing poker. Come on. Right, we don't we want to finish that way. Something a little to lighten up your day. We want to finish well. Our text this morning under three headings. A better word. 
a serious warning, and an acceptable worship. Remember, enduring well. We have a better word. There is a serious warning, and then there is an acceptable worship. So number one, a better word. As I said, the author said in chapter 12, I want to encourage you, like they did it, you can do it. Just like the men of old, you can do it. And, and he starts off with chapter 12 telling us how we can do that. He says first that we can, we can do it because we have uh, this, sur- we are surrounded, chapter 12, verse 1, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There, there are examples to follow. It's not them looking down on us. It's more of us looking up to them. They have done it. We can do it. But ultimately, the author says we are to finally look to Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. We are to look to Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, ran the race well, endured hostility against him, and went to the cross. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. In chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, we are reminded that God uses loving, fatherly discipline to help us endure. It's always perfect. It, it, it is always for our good. It is always for our joy. And so that we can share in God's holiness. Reap a harvest of righteousness. Right living. Verse 11. Share in his holiness. And, and family, as we, as we go through what we are going through. As we are being tried. As we are in difficulties. We are in hard times right now. There, there are millions and millions of things God could be doing. I don't know. I know all things happen either sent by the sovereign hand of God or allowed by the sovereign hand of God. I'm not going to try to figure all that out. But one thing I can promise you by God's word that you can have 100% assurance of. One, God is in control. And two, as the scriptures have been teaching us, all that we go through, all that we go through is meant to refine us. It is meant for us to trust more in him. It is meant for us to be conformed to the image of his son. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You're growing, you're, you're growing, you're being complete, you're understanding more of grace, more of the gospel. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6, in this you rejoice. The church was under severe persecution. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, hardships, difficulties, so that the tested, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the coming of Jesus Christ. That I can assure you. God wants us to trust him, to turn to him, to run to him, to lean on him, to rely upon him, and to grow in the likeness of his son, in love and grace and mercy. God's discipline, circumstances we are in, hard times we are in, is purposeful. And because it is purposeful, how are we to respond? Look at the text, chapter 12, verse 12, if you have your Bibles open. It says this, 
We are to respond by lifting our drooping hands, strengthening our weak knees, making straight paths for our feet, run together, caring for the lame and for the weak, strive for peace, strive for holiness, keep in pace with divine grace. Don't let a root of bitterness come up. Unbelief. Spring up in the congregation, in the fellowship. Don't be sexually immoral or irreverent and unfaithful like Esau who married foreign women and sold his birthright for a single meal. Don't do that. Lift up your hands. Make your legs straight. Care for one another. And as we pick up verse 18 of chapter 12, the author presents a very important contrast he wants us to see. This contrast between two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion corresponding to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. We looked at verses 18 through 24 briefly last week, and we said that the Old Covenant was associated with Mount Sinai. Why? Because God, it was there where God spoke to Moses when the covenant was established. And he, the author in chapter 12, verse 18, gives us a little glimpse of what took place. For you have not come to what may be touched, he's talking about Sinai, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens, excuse me, made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given for even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Terrifying was the sight of Moses. He said, I, I tremble with fear. That's the time... Exodus 19, the covenant of God was made with Moses on the mountain. The law was given. It was a covenant of judgment, fear, and death. Even for animals, if they touched the mountain, they would die. Now, we don't have time to get into this. There's a lot of grace in the old covenant as well. But here, the author is trying to show that when God descended upon his mountain, it displayed, it revealed, it, it, it demonstrated this unparalleled power, authority, majesty, might, and holiness, this, this mountain that, that God descended on was consecrated, set apart. There's a place of awe and terror for Israel. They, they stood trembling in fear. And, and, the, and the primary purpose, I think, of all these signs was to convince the people of, of this absolute unapproachableness of God. How sinful man could not come near a holy God and live. And God descended to establish the old covenant, the people were forbidden again to put even a foot on the mountain under penalty of law. Sinai was this physical mountain where all this took place and this earthly mountain symbolized these physical aspects of that covenant as contrasted to, or contrasted with the heavenly Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. And this scene in verse 22 is really you think about it, it's just as awe-inspiring and amazing and majestic as the first, but for very different reasons. We are coming to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the capital city of God, in the new heavens, in the new earth, the dwelling place of God, the dwelling of God and God's people around them. There is praises forevermore. And the mountain in which we have come, look what it says, has innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn, the church, the people of God. United with Christ, who is the firstborn over all creation, the church. 
Now, because we are in union and united with Christ, we have become the recipients of this inheritance that has been designated by God for his only begotten son. Look what it says next. We come to a judge. A God who is a judge of all. Not an earthly judge. Not someone who makes mistakes. Doesn't know. Not really sure. Doesn't understand motives. We come to a God who is judge over all. Where no sin, no rebellion will really go unpunished. It won't. And listen to this. No good done, no good deed done in the Spirit for the glory of God will go unnoticed. He's the judge. Ligon Duncan, pastor, seminary professor, said this. When we think of the idea of a judge, very oftentimes we say, oh, we don't want to face God as our judge. But, If we are in Christ, facing God as judge is an encouragement because it means that the false accusations which the world has made against us, as we have been faithful to Christ, will be judged as wrong. We will be vindicated. And so the fact that God is the judge of all the earth is, in fact, something that encourages believers. Let that encourage you. End of 23, verse 23. Notice the next part. And to the spirits, the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is speaking of the saints who have already experienced the reality of God's perfecting work in glory. Believers who, look what it says, how now, who have now been made perfect. That's by the Savior's perfect life. The Savior's atoning death. Just so you know, you're not perfect by yourself. You're welcome. That should humble you. It is Jesus' perfect righteousness, the Bible says, that's been imputed, that has been counted toward us. His righteousness. And look what it says about Jesus, finally, in verse 24. We have come to Jesus. The mediator of the new covenant to our Fully human, fully divine Savior, the mediator of the covenant, new covenant of grace. To the sprinkled blood. Not to the blood of the sacrifices of animals. We have come to the sprinkled blood of God's own Son. Who has made our consciences clear. Who has given us forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. That blood we were sprinkled with. That sacrifice is our Hope. Christ sprinkled blood, the text says, look, speaks a better word. Speaks a better word than Abel. Why? Because Jesus' blood saves sinners. Abel, if you remember in Genesis chapter 4, um, chapter four uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 4, was unjustly murdered by his brother. And the Lord said that his blood cried out for justice. Abel's blood spoke of sin, of murder, of judgment. But when Jesus' blood was spilled, it spoke not against an unjust act, but spoke for it. The blood of Jesus, the blood of the, of the covenant, the better covenant, speaks a better word. Because it speaks to us who, like Cain, are guilty sinners. Jesus' blood speaks a better word because it speaks of, listen, satisfying justice. Forgiveness, cleansing, mercy, grace, peace. 
It completely washes away our sins. It completely satisfies God's anger and wrath against sin once and for all. Believers do not come to an earthly mountain in fear to meet God. We come to a heavenly city. A heavenly assembly to a mediator whose blood shed was shed for our sins. So let's heed the better word. Let's heed the better word in our perseverance, remembering always that we come to God by grace. Not by climbing the mountain of Sinai by our own good works, our own good deeds. Because the scripture says they are but filthy rags. We come to Zion. A sinner, a broken sinner where we cry out, Lord, I'm trusting in you, in your grace, in the only perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. I'm coming to Mount Zion, the the mountain of grace, relying upon the merits, the life of Jesus Christ alone. Father, I plead your forgiveness. I rest in your, your unfailing love and grace, and I enter into your presence. That's the better word that Jesus speaks. Now look with me at the serious warning, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's the descending of, uh, on the mountain, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. We've seen this argument before, this kind of argument, fortiori, it's, it's Latin for from the stronger. An argument from what is true in the lesser case will be even more true in the greater case. In the lesser case, God's word, God spoke from Sinai, warning them about the seriousness of violating the covenant. And if the Israelites did not escape the, the severe punishment of the first covenant, the old covenant, when they hardened their hearts against this revelation, this, re, this revealed word from God from Mount Sinai, how much greater, he's saying, is the punishment for those who do not heed the gospel, which comes to us from the heavenly Mount Zion, mountain of grace. The author said something very similar in chapter 2, verses 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? George Gunthery rightly says this, the word must be received or rejected. The word of the gospel. For those who reject the word, he says, there exists no escape from God's judgment. At the end, a person either resides as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or or perishes with the rest of the universe. And here's the point. Uh, End quote. Here's the point. For those who rebelled and dishonored the covenant at Sinai, how would you even begin to think that you will escape such a salvation so incomparably great and wonderful that is ours in Christ Jesus the Lord. Remember the purpose of this letter. The sufficiency, the superiority, the supremacy of Christ. His perfect sacrifice, his final act of redemption Attained by his self-sacrifice in contrast, he's been saying over and over, to the imperfect ones. The, the continuation of sacrifices. And compared to his once and for all sacrifice. 
These folks in, these persecu- in their persecution, in their hardships, are being drawn away from Christ. And he's saying, don't go. Remember the incomparable, great, and wonderful salvation. The warning against the apostasy, under the, the walking away from the faith under the old covenant was dreadful. But how much more dreadful is the consequences if we reject the gospel, the new covenant? The message is clear. Don't neglect the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Receive it as a gift. Because God promises that those who reject it will not escape punishment. Verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What our author is pointing to is that when God gave the first covenant on Sinai, his voice shook the earth. Exodus 19. In fact, Psalm 68.8 says that there was an earthquake that is associated with the revelation, with the word given at Sinai. But what our author does here, he, he, he takes that scene and then he adds a quote from an Old Testament prophet named Haggai, Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6, where the Lord promises that he'll do it again. That he'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Shaking of the earth at Sinai, uh, what what the author is doing is saying there was a shaking, and he's taking this other passage and saying that shaking of Sinai pointed to a much greater shaking that will impact everything. At the end of this age, God will shake the earth. There will be a shaking, another major shaking. Shaking of the earth to go along with all the revelation of the nations. Everyone will see it. You can read that in Haggai. So listen, at at Sinai, Mount Sinai, God shook the earth. From Zion, he's going to shake the earth and the heavens and the entire cosmos, the entire universe will come before him for judgment. Why? Look what it says in verse 27. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but this is what the author picks up. Verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, that things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The final and shaking of the heavens and the earth is essential, absolutely essential, necessary. And the means by which God will purge, which God will eradicate from the universe all sin, all rebellion, all hostility, all the effects of sin from the earth. And what will remain, he promises, is all that is unshakable, unremovable, absolutely secure and perfect and It will be ready for the people of God who belong to this kingdom, this new Jerusalem. It is something, family, listen, the children of God should be waiting and anticipating the coming of this kingdom. The redemption, the restoration, the the renewal of all of creation. In which all God's purposes in creation are brought, listen, brought into everlasting fulfillment. This consummation of redemption and restoration and renewal was procured in Christ and by Christ. All this will take place with Christ. 
at the end in glory and majesty. The Apostle John writes this in his first epistle. The world is passing away along with its desires. So all the things that we, all the things that people that we live for, all the things we think we have to have, all the things we strive for in this world will ultimately come to nothing. And John continues, the world is passing away along with the desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Peter too writes in his uh, epistle about judgment. He said, the, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Part of the anxiety, part of the, the fears that, that grip us is, we, is, is because we are so focused on what we see and what we know, the here and now, all those things are being threatened. And the reason Christians have, have faced for centuries the unknown, arduous and very hard and difficult times, severe persecution with unwavering commitment to Christ is the very reason the, the very reason is because they had an eternal perspective <clears throat> one of the things of uh, this crisis um, this virus has done i think is to awaken the need to to really look at and to to really think deeply the reality that one day everything in this world that has been made that makes us feel secure, will be removed. It is unstable, shaky, and and dangerously unpredictable. And all that will be left in the end will be the rock-solid, unshakable kingdom of God. I mean, how fragile is our life? How fragile is our life against diseases and floods and tornadoes, violence, a fragile economy? Life is very fragile. But God promises that all that... God, but, but God promises. Even though all that is shakable will be removed, the great unshakable of kingdom of God will remain. The day will come when this world will pass away. And those who have their hopes, those who have their dreams, those who have their, 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 their security, their salvation grounded in this world will be sorely and eternally mistaken. That's a timely word for today. No matter what happens, those who have trusted Christ, our future is built on a solid foundation. Built on a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Don't put your confidence in what's going to be, what won't, what won't remain, what will be destroyed. Instead, let us place our confidence in Christ. Build your life, my life on Christ. Rest in the hope of his unshakable kingdom. Does, you know, does this mean we shouldn't have real cautious, uh, real, excuse me, real concerns in being cautious? No. But it does mean that we have to really think, we have to really be sure that we had better find our ultimate hope, our ultimate peace, our ultimate joy in God. In the God who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship, 
A better word, a serious warning, an acceptable worship. Verse 28. Therefore, because Christ is a better word, because Christ's blood is a better sprinkled blood for our salvation, because Christ warns about the coming judgment, but extends his nail-scarred hands, and by grace, Christ has come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, and therefore, since his kingdom is the only kingdom that will remain, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us also offer to God an acceptable worship, or offer to God acceptable worship, how? With reverence and awe. Several years ago, maybe some of you were here, uh, we did a, a short series on worship. And we said that the essence of worship is primarily not about forms or actions or styles of music, the essence of worship is, is our response to God's self-revelation. A response to his holiness and his glory that is due him. Because God has, been, has revealed himself as radically other. His, his, he is beautiful. He has of infinite value and worth. And we said back then what the author really is saying here. Our response, our worship should produce two things. Gravity and gratitude. Gravity, he is holy, we are not. We are, we are created finite people who, because of sin, have been separated from God. Tainted by sin in every way. And that sin has separated us and really should destroy us. His holiness, his glory, his infinite value, his incalculable worth, his majesty, beauty would crumble us to powder. And we ought to tremble before him for who has revealed himself to be. But it can't stay there. Because as we come face to face with the holiness of God, just like Isaiah did, Isaiah 6. He said he was undone, he was unclean, undone. So are we, unclean, undone because of sin. But because of Jesus Christ, we are wonderfully forgiven by the self-sacrifice. His shed blood in our place for our sins. The gospel is we are so rebellious. We are so sinful that God had to come and die. But we are loved and we are precious to him. He was pleased to die. The essence of our worship should have both elements. Gravity is holiness and gratitude of, of the wonder of grace and forgiveness. Reverence and awe, gratitude and gravity. We are sinners redeemed by the hand of mercy. Enemies are reconciled by his love. Rebels who are made children of heirs of God's eternal kingdom. The acceptable worship is both gratitude to God for the gospel, for the kingdom that cannot be shaken and reverence, a recognition of his holiness, majesty, power, beauty. That's what the author is getting at. And this idea of acceptable worship uh, kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 12, does it not? Verse 1, that by the mercies of God, there's his grace, there's his mercy. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart for him, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of life really is an act of worship. 
and in response to the one who redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. We do not come to God. That's what the author is saying. With this flippant, casual, irreverent attitude, we come with humility and gospel fear. Gospel fear. Not with haughtiness, not with recklessness, but we approach the one who can and will shake the heavens and the earth. We worship him as those who know we don't deserve his mercy and grace, but receive it as, as a gift of God. Citizens of his unshakable kingdom. Verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, notice the word our. He's talking about uh, uh, relationships. Our God is a consuming fire. The, the idea of consuming fire, Exodus 24, Deuteronomy 4, of Moses' description of God on Sinai. And a clear description that what the author is saying is the God of Zion, excuse me, the God of Sinai is the same God of, of Zion. Sinai and Zion, the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people get that confused. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the word fire here, we know is a metaphor for judgment. Severe, total, and complete judgment. And in this, in this last two verses, there's a word of warning. And there's also a word of worship and wonder. A warning of the dreadful consequence of abandoning the new covenant obtained by and sealed by the blood of Christ. A warning not to go back, but, but remain faithful to Jesus. Consequence of, of going back, of, of turning your back on Christ, or not receiving Christ, I should say. Divine wrath. But for the believer who's been purchased by the blood of Christ, the one who, whose deserved wrath was placed upon the Savior of the world, we can approach God with glorious worship, grateful, awe filled hearts. So there's a warning. Don't reject the word. Don't reject the gospel. You will not escape the fire. Severe consequences. And there's worship. God is a consuming fire should fuel our reverence and awe of him because those in Christ will remain unshaken in the kingdom of God. Now listen carefully. God's sovereign power, judgment, and authority of, over all things is meant to bring us to the place of of gospel fear, which is reverent fear and fear and awe of God. And so our understanding, when you read about the fear of God, I think at least has to take two perspectives. One, we look at the fear of God through the, the lens of the gospel. It's called gospel fear. I'll explain that in a minute. And the other one is through the lens of unbelief, which our text is talking about as well. Let me illustrate to you uh, what gospel fear is like. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, Lewis, as we know, um, used the figure Aslan, uh, the giant and majestic lion, to kind of depict the Lord Jesus. And at one point, uh, this uh, adventurous girl named Jill, I'm sure you know her, comes upon a stream of water. She's been lost. She's very thirsty, dying of thirst. She comes forward, but she detects this lion sitting calmly near the water. And terrified, she stops in her tracks. And the lion invites her, if you are thirsty, the lion says, come and drink. Dying of thirst, she's drawn by the rippling gurgle of the stream. She's very thirsty. She steps a bit forward. She says, will you, will you promise not to, 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 to do anything to me if I come? 
I make no promises, said the lion. Drawing closer by the refreshing sounds of water, she wonders aloud, do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and conquerors, emperors, cities and realms, the lion replies. Jill recoils at this conclusion, uh, at this, at this, at these words, and she says, I, I don't come, I don't dare come and drink. And the lion says, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, cries Jill, drawn yet a step closer by her need of refreshment. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion responds to her, there is no other stream. She knows the lion is telling the truth. And she does come and drink. Listen, gospel fear is a recognition that in order to have the thirst of your souls filled by the waters of eternal life, we're going to have to deal with that kind of God. He will not move out of the way. For us, he will not change his character or his ways. He will not become more palatable to please our egos. He will never be safe, but he'll always be compassionate. He is the Savior, the God of majesty, power, and fire, but he's also the God of grace, love, and mercy. The God who shakes the kingdoms, the heavens and the earth, but gives to his own a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is gospel fear. You know, one of the general principles of fear is that when you are afraid, that when you and I are in the grips of fear, nothing else matters. Our focus is on the thing in which we are afraid of. I'm, I'm getting more and more afraid of heights as I get older. I don't know why, but I am. And if I have to get up on a, on a ladder, which I don't usually go, or a roof, there's only one thing I'm thinking about, getting down. That is it. Fear dominates and absorbs you. Gospel fear is the fear of the Lord, the awesomeness of God, an inward reverence of the heart, a seeing, a clinging to the majesty and magnificence of who God is and what God has done in the gospel. Gospel fear is being dominated, controlled, captivated by the God who loves you. And that's good because God is good. When other fears grip our hearts, fear of the unknown, fear of death, fear of the future, that kind of negative fear that you are afraid of, the thing has you captivated. It dominates your heart. And you know what it does? It torments us. And when we sin, when, when we worry or fear of things above the fear of God, it is because we are holding on to something. Something in our lives has us, we have this awe of something more than we have this awe of God. Treasuring it more than God, finding it more wonderful, more pleasurable, more hopeful than God. And the gospel, it captivates you more than God. And when you and I are in awe of trying to control our circumstances, when you and I are in awe of trying to, to, to figure out the unknown, when you and I are more in awe of our own wisdom, more, more in awe of what you and, and I don't have or do have, than the awe of God's love, sovereignty, wisdom, power, authority, you will worry, I will worry, I will have fear. How do we remain 
How can we remain in gospel fear? Here's how. Jesus and the gospel must become more precious to your heart. More loving, more beautiful to your soul. More attractive to your imagination than your fears. Pressing in the gospel to your heart is is asking your heart regularly, what is it in my heart that is operating in the place of the gospel? In the place of the majesty, the beauty, the sufficiency, superiority, and the supremacy of Christ. What is it? That has now become my functional savior. What are you looking for? What are you looking to for peace and joy? Finances, money, power, relationship. When, when, when we place other fears above the awe and majesty and wonder and beauty of God in the gospel. That will captivate us and terrorize us. But when our eyes are fixed upon the truth of who God is and all that God has done. We will be captivated by his love. That is why Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Worldly fears look to take, listen, worldly fears look to take your life from you. The real God gave his life for you. The real God was beaten and stripped naked on the cross so that we can be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus died and was put in a dark tomb so that we can have light. He was, he was cast out on the cross when he absorbed our sin and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we can be welcomed into his presence? He bore our sin and wrath so that we can have forgiveness and the assurance of being brought into the presence of this God. Let us end where we began. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark my sin, mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. But, Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think about that. The more I'm forgiven, the more I fear you. Shouldn't it be the more I'm scared of your anger toward me, the more that you that I'm going to be afraid of you? No, that's not what he said. The more I experience your love, the more I experience your grace, the more I experience your forgiveness, the more I will fear you. Gospel fear actually heightens the love, grace, forgiveness of God. Because we know the gospel. The gospel is that God knows, loves, and forgives and accepts me because of the perfect life of Jesus. His atoning death and nothing that I can bring. He has prepared an eternal kingdom that will not be shaken. And listen, when the gospel comes into your life, when God's love and grace has you captivated and you begin to to really see, embrace, and treasure Christ above all earthly treasures, all the other fears will begin to dissipate. Begin to dissipate. So, hear this word. Let us together worship our God, who is a consuming fire, but a God who has gone through the fire himself. Old prophet Nahum 1, verse 6. Who could stand before his indignation, same as we read in Psalm 130. 
Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. And on the cross, as Jesus took our sin, bore our wrath like a fire in our place, what did he cry out? I thirst. I thirst so that you can drink. In John 4, Jesus tells a woman in Samaria, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the physical side of water, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So family, listen, Jesus became thirsty so that you can have eternal life. Jesus became thirsty so that you could never again fear what the world can and cannot give you, a kingdom that will be lost. Jesus became thirsty, who died on the cross for our sins, taking our place so that we can have him, the waters of eternal life. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and have a healthy reverence and awe of the God of the gospel, a God of all majesty, beauty, glory, and holiness, who has extended grace to you through his Son, who offers you eternal life and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So family, let's remember our God. Let's worship our God. Let us keep our eyes fixed upon our God who is a consuming fire, who is, who is a God who will shake the heavens and shake the earth so that all that is in this world will be lost, but his kingdom will last forever. Do you know that God? Do you understand the gospel? If you don't, I invite you to come and to acknowledge that you're a sinner as I am a sinner, that you've sinned against God. And God is holy and God is just. And God will not allow sin to go unpunished. But God in his love and his grace and his mercy sent his only son to live the perfect life you will never live and to die an atoning death in your place for your sins and simply repent. Turn from being your own savior, your own functional savior, your own Lord and savior. Turn from that and turn to God and say, God, I'm a sinner Save me, I'm trusting in Jesus who died and rose for me and I invite you into my life. If you've never done that, I invite you, implore you to do that this morning. If you're a believer in Christ and maybe fear has gripped your heart, have a greater awe of the greatness and majesty and beauty and glory and love and mercy and grace of God as we get through this together. May the Lord be with you. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this glimpse of of who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are a sovereign and majestic God as well. As we rest in you today and always, remind us, Lord, of your greatness and your mercy and help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.